Welcome to the Ad Astra podcast. Today we have with us Marco Ryan, who is a professor of history and associate professor of history at the University of New Mexico. And he, um, in the history of astrology, has a very known work, which is the Kingdom of Stargazers, about the practices of astrology in medieval uh, our Kingdom of Aragon in the Iberian Peninsula. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very touched and honored to be here. No, it's an honor for us. Um, so uh, please let us know a little bit about your studies and how do you end up in history of astrology and, and your research? Sure. So, you know, I don't think I've ever really talked about how the book developed. I mean, it was an outgrowth of my dissertation from the University of Minnesota, where I was really looking at these questions of prophecy and, and claims to prophetic mm -hmm. insight, um, in particular during a time of profound crisis during the, the later Middle Ages. And one of the things that I, I noticed when I was finishing up the dissertation was really the preponderance of astrological imagery mm -hmm. in uh, these prophetic texts, and particularly in general, like where you start to see people talking about the course of future events, but thinking about it within a real celestial framework. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's how I got into it for the first book. Like that was something that I thought, well, okay, I really think I'd like to focus on that for this first book. And when I started doing the work on the book, one of the things that really struck me was the very problematic role of astrology in medieval culture. And in a lot of ways, how truly liminal it is. It is a discipline that is incredibly complex in many, many ways, right? In order to do it effectively, if you're going to be a trained astrologer. But there's also this level of it that has a kind of a base level of appeal that sort of transcends that, that level of kind of high level learning. Um, people are interested in astrology for all sorts of different reasons and approach it very differently um, in the Middle Ages from a variety of aspects. And that was some of the kind of the, the questions that undergirded my, my research was, okay, well, one, why is astrology so problematic? And in the first half of the book, I, I try to do that and say, this is where we see it really being contested. And then in the second half, I said, okay, well, let's apply it in the context of a medieval kingdom. What does it mean, right, if you are a sovereign who's into astrological matters, especially if astrology is seen as somewhat problematic, what sort of criticisms can that get you uh, charged with? Why is is so problematic. I mean, I think one of the things, and we were talking a little bit about this before you started recording, right, is this notion of how interested people are in astrology and in astrological discourse and at all levels of society. And that in many ways is, is kind of where I'm going with this new book, which is really not very astrological in nature. So I guess to go back to your original position, I, I see my own work as sort of a continuing outgrowth and a continuing evolution. I can see, for instance, where my dissertation, which was a very close re reading of prophetic texts, leads into this astrological study and how I did the research for this, this book led me into the, the new one that I'm presently working on, mm -hmm. um, which is all about alchemy and fraud and deceit in late medieval Venice. Yeah, so you, you moved from um, the Iberian Peninsula 
the north of Iberian Peninsula to Venice, but still within interesting, interesting topics, like, yes, yes. such as alchemy and fraud. <laughs> the famous <laughs> wretched subject. Yeah, the famous <laughs> wretched subject. <laughs> It's, it's interesting, right, because there are all of these occult sciences, right, astrology and alchemy and necromancy, too, right, that are very uh, based off of an Arabic body of knowledge, right? And in a lot of ways coming at this, so I'm, I'm not a historian of science, right, and I'm not a historian of medicine. I'm a historian of magic. And to come at it from that perspective, I think, also adds a different element as well, right? Um, there are still historians of science, for instance, who will look at astrology or alchemy within a teleological framework as sort of um, things to be ashamed of on the way to, to true science, right? When really it's not, it's not like that at all, right? It's a, it's a much more complicated relationship between these disciplines. And in thinking about kind of going from an archive that I know, right, the archive of the Crown of Aragon, to one that I really, did not know, but have become much more familiar with, is daunting. That's the Archivio de Stato di Venezia. Mm -hmm. it's, it's daunting, but one of the things I found very, very helpful has been a lot of scholars, particularly of Venice, have been incredibly helpful in shepherding me through and saying, okay, look at these sources and think about, like, I found people to be very generous of spirit, and I've been very, very grateful with that, especially since I'm known as an Iberianist, right, not trained really as an Italianist, but entering in this, into this Italian project. Many scholars of Venice have been very, very receptive to it, which I, I'm very, very grateful for. So, Chigadiamo, as we say in Italian, right? We'll see. You yeah. probably know some people that uh, we probably know people uh, in common, like uh, Pietro Omodio or uh, Daryl Rudkin, people that are in Venice at this point, studying these topics, uh, divination and magic. So probably we have some contacts in common also. I actually don't know them personally. I mean, I know their names and their work, but not personally. So. They are great, both of them, yes. <laughs> So, uh, but anyway, uh, you you changed. Well, you I wouldn't say you changed subject. It's more like you shifted naturally. You developed naturally from one thing to the other. But the one thing that you mentioned that is very very relevant for us because we are both historians of science, and it's that uh, we should see astrology not only as um, kind of an occult science. And not only as some kind of strange, superstitious thing, but if you're looking at the Middle Ages or even the, the Renaissance and the, the early modern and modern periods, if you look at these periods, uh, astrology was, uh, and I, I say this so many times, not only a practice, that something that people did, but also the way they described the universe. All these, these spheres, all this organization, all these, all these um, mechanics and... Um, symbolic relations, this was the way they saw the world and the way they explained the world, the same the same way that we explained the world by uh, gravity and atoms and uh, other things that probably 300 years from now people will be criticizing us. <laughs> so yeah, it's just part of the, the, the path of knowledge, the way we develop our knowledge. So yeah, there's no, no reason to, yeah, to reject a, it. Yeah, it's the history of knowledge and everything needs to be looked at uh, with its proper context. Uh, context. Yeah, and lots of, sometimes people are looking at things with modern context and it doesn't work. It starts short-circuiting everything and every way of looking at it. 
Um, one of the things you were also saying, uh, and this is a, a topic that I've been dealing with because I, I'm working more or less in the period where you have the, the first anti-astrological bulls coming in and all that regulation in the passage between the 16th and the 17th century. And um, as you were saying, and as you approach in the first part of the book, there is always this discussion as how licit and how illicit is the astrological practice and how far can you go and still be a proper Christian and being within the proper Christian practices. And I think that's a discussion that in, in, a, in the Latin context, uh, most of the world, Christianity has mm. this struggle with how to assimilate something that is highly embedded in, in, in everyday life uh, since antiquity and has problematic uh, problems with the divinatory aspect of astrology. And um, um, you also, it is interesting to, to see how this works in several levels of society. But I think one thing that's still to be clarified, and, and you approach it uh, on several aspects in the book, is that we did have astrology for different levels. Uh, people usually we are looking at a very high level of astrology, which is done by scholars who published works. So it's it's in a higher level. But there's also another level of society, uh, much poorer, more simple level, which we have very little information of, of how exactly it is done. We have ideas, for example, in Arabic. We just spoke recently with Kuryu Samso, who worked a lot with the history of Islamic and the Al-Andalus and the practice of uh, astronomy and old of astrology. And he was talking about a low practice which you do in the markets, uh, in the marketplace, astrology in the marketplace. And of course, that will carry on to, to, to all the Christian kingdoms as well as it would be expected. Um, uh, how, how, where did you... Can you talk a little bit more about these distinctions? Where, where your research did you this? intersected this kind of layering uh, of astrology. So for the first book, not as much. And it's funny because, again, how I got into this Italian project was through, when I was doing the, the, the research for A Kingdom of Stargazers, I had an opportunity to be at the Beinecke at Yale uh, for a month. And that's where I first encountered uh, this book of secrets or an alchemical miscellany called Melon Manuscript 6. That's the shelf mark. And one of the things that, that struck me was that the modern catalogers called it, um, described it, its contents as having a hint of charlatanry. And I started, that's what led me to this next project where I'm thinking, what makes a charlatan a charlatan, right? And this was one of those things where I looked at this, I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. I don't know if it's really gonna fit for this per book, but maybe I wanna go back to this. And one of the things you see is that there is astrological discourse in these books of secrets and these alchemical miscellanies, but it's a very kind of a, it's a very basic rudimentary understanding of astrology, right? Where these are the qualities of the planets. These are the qualities of the zodiac. These are the qualities of the sign, right? And you get, you get this sort of written in an Italian vernacular. It's meant to really instruct the reader of the bare bones knowledge of astrology, right? So that if you are using it, I think, I think in a diagnostic framework, you have that immediate reference right there, right? So that's an almost kind of 
practical applicability of astrology at a much lower level. And I find that really fascinating. Like the first book, I enjoyed writing it very much, but I did feel while I was writing it, it has a very elite focus, right? This is one of the things that, I mean, by by dint of its positioning and the sources I look at and the individuals I look at, it's very much an elite focused study. And I wanted to do with this one, a much more popular focused study, right? How do we think about the base of knowledge, for instance, of, of conjuring men in the streets of Venice or practical alchemists in the streets of Venice? How do we think about what do they know? How do, they, how do we know what they know? And so looking at this, at a book of secrets like this, I think is fascinating. I mean, one of the things I'm going to be bringing up in this particular study is that the alchemical and the astrological knowledge that's contained within it is really meant to be Understood easily and applied readily. That is my reading of it. That's how I think it's supposed to be used. It's difficult, right? Because there's no proof. There's nothing in the margin that says, ha ha ha, I used it this way, right? You can get that, it would be wonderful. But by, but by extrapolating it, right? You do get a sense of a type of engagement with these occult principles that are much more distilled and much much more manageable in a lot of ways. And, and like I said, much more practical. Yes, yes. And, uh, do you know um, uh, as it when it comes to results, what were what kind of results were they looking for? Everyday life or the philosopher's stone or <laughs> eternal life? Or? I that's a great question. I mean, I think there's stuff for everyday life, right? Certainly for everyday remedies. But I do think there are some, to use kind of an Americanism, highfalutin principles, <laughs> kind of high-level philosophical principles. I mean, one of the, the recipes I find really interesting is that it's it's an elaborate alchemical process it, that produces three stones at the end of it. One that's red, one that's white, one that's green. And when we think in alchemical discourse, we have to think red, white, and black, right? Those mm -hmm. are the principles. But but what I found really interesting about this is that it's supposed to refer to these alchemical principles. It says in the recipe itself, it was passed down by Hermes Trismegistus, right? So it's part of that larger tradition, right, that they, they're setting up. But the practical aspect is that they're meant to be healing stones. Like they're meant to actually heal someone, right, from all sorts of different ailments. So there's this question about, right, again, an elite alchemical principle that's then being distilled and it's claimed, right, that it's going to produce some sort of miraculous results if you do it this way. And I think that's one of the things that I find really interesting with these books of secrets as, and sort of as lenses into the history of magic slash science slash medicine mm -hmm. is that in many ways they're designed to really get at very, very obtuse occult principles and make them much more manageable and, and really much more again, viable for someone's day-to-day -day life. Um, there are other ones I've looked at, other books of secrets. Um, I had an opportunity a few years ago to, to be in Venice and work at the Biblioteca Marciana. And there's a beautiful book of secrets there that was owned by Cardinal Bessarion. And uh, there's all sorts of different recipes in there. And some of them are quite wondrous and many of them are how to make iron stronger. Some of them are meant to, to produce mirabilia, how to make a globe emit constant light. But then there's one that I've been working on that I really love. It's, it's how to make a magic sword. And it's right in the middle of this, this collection of recipes and the, the manuscript opens up directly to that page. Mm -hmm. So again, it raises these questions. Who's reading it? How are they reading it? How are they dealing with it? Those are some of the questions I have to answer later on, but, but it is fascinating to see this question about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. occult principles or magical principles. And then here's some 
practical ones, right? They, they're in that same guide. There's a, there's one on how to kill doves, like how to kill pigeons, which I think is really interesting in the sense that I mean it's cruel, right? It, it's a cruel process, but. What I find really interesting is that you hear in Venice today, people say, oh, all those pigeons in the Piazza San Marco, those are the fault of the Austrians. The Austrians brought them, right? They like to say it's from the time of the Austrian Dominion, when it's not, really. Like, when we see, though, these pigeons are here, and this is a way to deal with them. It's, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's a recipe that either follows it or precedes it that says how to call pigeons to you. So, you know, it's, it, they're all kind of collected in these sort all of... All sorts of things, yeah. 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 We yeah. have a, a king uh, here, uh, Duarte, King Duarte, he lived in the 15th century, and he um, he had uh, he, he, he liked to write, and he collected all sorts. It's not alchemical because he was not into alchemy, but all sorts of practical um, medical stuff, yeah. and um, also architecture, like how to build a dome mm -hmm. without a column in the yeah. center. Or yeah. how to it's cure a, diseases. Yeah, it's a book of curiosities. Even, um, yeah. Curious knowledge. that Curious he, knowledge. Yeah. Even one that goes as far as how to dry milk from the breasts of a woman. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. helpful. <laughs> so you see all sorts of things. So they, uh, and from the most important things to the everyday life. Yeah, so the high spirits are for, yes. for something. Then, so yeah, it yeah. is very interesting to see how they collect information and the books were like um, reservoirs of information, yes. all sorts. Yes, I've seen, so. for example, here in the libraries, many books of which have astrological notes or notes of people who are studying or taking things from books. We usually have these kind of recipes, not necessarily alchemical, yours are very specific, but they have this practical small remedies yeah. for cough and Oh yeah, something like that. S simple things of daily life, and they, they have this sometimes more magical, sometimes more, more more just medicinal. But they're there in some way. Sometimes small praise that you have to say while taking whatever tea, and then that will cure headache or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. What's fascinating about this too is this again, you know, some of these recipes are cosmetic, some of them are culinary, some of them are a combination and, and include medicinal qualities, some of them include magical qualities. And I think one of the most interesting and fascinating things about these types of sources, and again, what what's frustrating about them is a lot of times they're anonymous, right? We don't know who owned them and how they were used. And I know for many historians of kind of books and manuscripts, they say, well, we need to know who owned us and how they used them, blah, blah, blah. And, and those are vital questions. But if you don't have those answers readily, you still can answer a lot about these particular sources. And one of the things that I think is most illustrative of these particular sources is how all of these disciplines blend in some ways in some ways seamlessly, in some ways not, but how they're all kind of conceptualized in one text as such. I find that absolutely fascinating, right? Where you can find, and it gets to this question that, that gets raised earlier, right? Where we think about how today, people will often try and position astrology or alchemy or any of the occult disciplines, again, as kind of, a, you know, they're aberrant, right? They're, they're, they're things to be understood in the history of science or medicine that leads to truth with a capital T, right? And that's, that's, that I think is, is, again, one of the biggest issues when looking at this is that people, we moderns in the 20th and 21st centuries conceptualized it as such.
They did not in the 15th absolutely, century. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. yes. That, that I think that, that yeah, you're we right. say that a lot. That yes. is crucial because that will create if you go into them, into this kind of source with that mentality, with your mind anchored Trying in present to day. Your... You're going to miss the point uh, uh, of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So that's and that's true with astrology, alchemy, or any any other marginalized, uh, currently marginalized form of knowledge. Uh, for them, that was day-to-day -day science knowledge that was unquestionable. This is something that we are constantly having the problem as historians of astrology. Is that to explain that? Before the 18th century, astrology is normal, what we consider today normal science. Normal so knowledge, yes. Very few people would question until late 17th century if astrology and celestial influence would work or not. That was not into question. They could question the degree the, of influence. Yeah, the degree of influence. And they could question if it was legitimate or not because of the church, but... They or to would, interpret, or if it was possible scientifically, if yeah, you can call it that. Yeah, but they would not question the, 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 the view of the cosmos that astrology provided. Yes. So, yeah. and even even when we 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 uh, transitioned between uh, geocentric and heliocentric universe, the universe, um, the, the the same people who promoted the, the heliocentric model were astrologers, were practicing it. And they used the, the, the geocentric model for calculation, but then we live yeah. in, in, uh, on Earth and we see the, the, the universe from this perspective. So it's something that persists very much. Mm -hmm. That's also, I think, the power of astrology. And the, when we, as historians, we study astrology, we, we have to understand that this is something that was a normal part of people's lives, was just not kind of an eccentricity or anything, it was normal, normal one. Yeah, what well, today yeah. Is a, can be viewed as an eccentric perspective. It was normal for normal them. for, for yeah. that time. And, that, and I think that's a problem still today with a lot of historiography um, in the way they, they define. And, well, the, the simple fact that most of the time we talk about occult sciences and occult sciences it's an 18th century thing it's an enlightenment more or less arrangement of things which we have to use because that's how how today we, we put things in the shelves but still it, it has nothing to do with that with pre-modern way of thinking and it gets complicated when we try to translate one thing to the other as you very well know uh, but yeah, I think it's still a topic we have to struggle. No, I think that's the problem with history always, all the time. We, we have to... We have to take our mindset and try to, as mm. much as possible, understand things from the mindset of the, the period where they were created. But I, I have a question, uh, just changing the subject a little bit. Uh, when you talk about alchemy and you talk about all these disciplines that come together and they were not completely separated, uh, do you find, did you find in, in the manuscript that you studied uh, some a relation between astrology or a certain moment or a certain configuration and the moment to perform certain uh, alchemical activities? I ask this because some people um, say, some people defend that astrology came later to alchemy. And you know what I mean? Yeah, um, so that's a really interesting question. Um, 
The short answer is no, at least in the manuscript that I've studied. Um, there's not really anything that says you do this at this time and this would be the result that you get. Rather, the thing that I've, I've really approached Mellon Manuscript 6 with is that it's really kind of a guide. It's a pedagogical guide more than anything else. Um, it, it, that it's meant to impart upon the reader the basic principles of what you are supposed to know in order to work wonders. So the, um, let me back up a little bit because the first section of the, the book that I'm really kind of unpacking at length deals with um, Marbotus of Ranz's treatise, his Lapidarium. So it's a treatise on the properties of stones. And then in the same scribal hand, you see a list of like 73 experimenta and processes. Mm -hmm. And the fact that those two sections were linked, I find very interesting. Now, the other stuff that I bring up, um, I don't go into as much detail just because I'm really looking at this question of what is wonder and how is wonder produced, right? Within a magical framework. But as far as I recall, there's nothing that I see in that Mellon manuscript that says, if you inscribe, um, if you inscribe this particular image, this image of the scorpion on this gem at this time, you'll get this result. I don't really see anything like that, right? Which means to me, it's not meant for an elite reader, right? It's not meant to, to someone who would really get an understanding of, of the importance of the time, of the position of these celestial bodies. To me, and again, I, I, this is just my own assess, assessment of Mellon Manuscripts. Mm -hmm. It, it seems to be much more of a, a, just kind of a general practicum, right? Rather than any, like there are no tables in there. There are no Alphonsine tables in there. There are no Ephraimides, you know, nothing like that. So <laughs> it's really meant to be much more, I think, diagnostic. And I think it's, I think the wonders are really meant to also be, I think they're meant to gain some degree of, um, confidence in the practitioner's abilities not like a con man per se mm -hmm. although right that it does overlap with that i think like one of the things i'm arguing is that these guides can be used for the would-be wonder worker mm -hmm. and so i don't think it's less important I, I think it's important to be able to do that right to, if you want to kind of hook someone and say hey, you really want this gem to be efficacious. I inscribed this image at this particular time when these celestial influences were at their, their maximum, right? With their maximum effect. But you don't get that in Mellon Manuscript yes. Sense, which I find really fascinating too. Yes. Also, there, there could be, and this is, this is also like a possibility, uh, there could be a difference between uh, oral uh, knowledge and written knowledge. Mm. And sometimes books were like, um, this is what we discuss a lot, uh, sometimes books were like for memory to, to keep the information. And then the master, if you had a, a, a master, he, the master would um, verbally teach the student yeah, directly. Yeah. Probably some of the Good secrets thing. would be yeah. transmitted like yeah. this and not through books. So I don't know. I, I'm mm -hmm. not saying that is, this is the case, probably not. Mm -hmm. But um, some of yeah. the knowledge would be transmitted directly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this question on, on alchemy was also something that has popped up here and then in our yes. conversations, uh, which is there are some scholars who think that there isn't that a close association yeah. with astrology, with practical astrology and practical alchemy. Um, yes. For they, the most evidence yeah. seem to suggest that they are separate things, although you could do certain operations at a certain time, that appears very, very close by in talismans, in certain practices yeah. talismans, but not so much with alchemy, apparently. 
I'm just speaking this out of my head because uh, from conversations that we have prior to uh, with other researchers, because it's not really our area, but it seems to be a pattern, which is which is interesting because you would you would think that there would be a stronger connection. But no, they seem to be because in, in, universes uh, apart. in yeah. medicine, when it comes to medicine, which is basically like an alchemical action of on the body, because you're extracting temperaments or, or humors or whatever, uh, that kind of thing, you know, like increasing or uh, diminishing humors in the body. And this would be there is this saying in medieval uh, in medieval medicine um, that uh, blind is a doctor who doesn't know astrology. So. Yep. <laughs> and so um, it's attributed to Aristotle, I think, I, I'm not sure. And, um, and this um, would be, um, any medical action would be increased in a certain, under a certain configuration. So this is why I ask. But uh, some, of, uh, some of the scholars that we have been uh, talking to, they say that uh, um, astrology came later to, to alchemy. Mm -hmm. the, the astrological considerations were only later added to alchemy. So what you're saying is that they could perform these activities mm -hmm. at any moment, at any moment. Yeah, yes. weren't, that, weren't, that wasn't an immediate concern, at least uh, at some point. You know, what I find really interesting, too, is the, the creation kind of astrological imagery and discourse, right, within alchemical writing. Right, where you find, for instance, you know, soul is gold. And each one of these metals that have a celestial influence, right, or that represent one of these celestial powers are powerful in their own right. And I think this gets to this question again about the widespread appeal of these occult sciences, right? That it is, there's um, one of the things I'm working on as well within this current manuscript is this question about performance, right? The performance of these acts, especially in a public setting. Um, because you really are competing against other public performers. And these include uh, preachers, right? Apocalyptic preachers. These include all these people who are part of the, that produce the kind of the culture of the public square uh, that really show the city and its vibrancy. They're all competing with one another. And, and in you know, when you had mentioned, Helena, about the, the transmission of knowledge, I was thinking about that, that one collection that, that um, the Bessarian text of the collection of recipes. Well, there are a bunch of recipes that are written in later hands. I mean, much later hands. And one of the things I find really interesting is that there's like this scribbling on the sides of the margins of these texts that say they're different alchemical procedures that they say, oh yeah, I heard about this in the shadow of the orologio. Right, so it's this kind of <laughs> sharing information with each other and writing it down, right? In terms of, okay, well, well, this is what we can do in, in various processes. I mean, I do find coming at this, right, as um, coming at this project as a historian of magic, right? And as someone who is really coming from an Iberian perspective as well. I, I mean, truly, when I first started it, I thought I was going to see something like with Eimerich, right? Eimerich, who really has a problem with magic. I mean, at theological fundamental levels. And I didn't know what to expect in the case of, of Venice. I was like, well, we'll see what's go what goes on. Because it's a, you know, it's an urban oligarchy with very little clerical oversight. It's not the same, they don't, the Venetian authorities don't have the same concern about any sort of theological slippage, mm -hmm. which I found fascinating, right? Really what, what it is, it's a matter of counterfeiting and fraud, right? This is what, what really, I think, for those Venetian authorities, they have the, the dim 
they take a dim view of, of alchemy, not because, oh, it's a cult or you're trying to perceive the will of God or anything like that. It's you're debasing the coin of the realm if you do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very yeah. practical. But uh, when, uh, the, 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 when you're studying in uh, Italy, medieval Italy, it's a very specific place because all these cities, they were like city-states. You know, oh, yeah. of course. And they, they were so independent, although they were really close to the Vatican. Yeah. geographically but they were so independent and the popes kept complaining about this like uh they, they do whatever they want and they don't do they are they not like the rules. they don't follow the <laughs> rules and they they had their own rules so yes. it's a tradition of having their own um mindset and their mm -hmm. own rules within their within their cities so it's extremely interesting and they they were they were all different from each other and then there's this uh, ongoing, I don't know if you get this in the period that you're studying, but this ongoing uh, conflict between Gelfs and um, uh, what are the others? And Ghibellines. Yeah. So this is something also very um, structural in this, in this area and in this period and probably uh, influenced a lot of the transmission and all these conflicts. So it's mm -hmm. a very specific um, period and uh, geographical area. Very, very interesting. Thank you. You know, one of the things I find, right, as an Iberianist, is that I'm after this particular project, there's another one I would like to turn to, and it's, it, it's going to take a long time, I think, because it's massive, got that thick tome, um, that is like an alchemical primer um, in many ways, but it goes between Latin, uh, an, a Northern Italian vernacular, mm. and Castilian. Mm. And you can see these texts really, I mean, it, they span from the late 15th century until the 16th century. And uh, this mm. is a really interesting alchemical primer, but it's certainly tied within the Iberian imperial enterprise as well. And that's something that I want to think about kind of as a new project down the road. Um, it's, another, it's another source that's at um, the Beinecke. But I find it really interesting, this kind of harnessing of occult sciences to imperial projects. I mean, Darren Hayton has done a lot of work with that, particularly with Max and yeah. Right, so it's not, it's, it's not, it's not um, surprising, right, to see something like that, like that would develop. But I want to see, again, this kind of bridging between these Iberian and these Italian worlds, especially when you have the arrival of this kind of Iberian presence in the Italian peninsula as an imperial presence. Mm -hmm. What does that do? Does that change how the occult is seen in many ways? Yes, yes. But I don't know. I don't know. That's That's really interesting. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those questions to answer in the future, yeah. But right. I'm still trying to figure out because it's Latin, Castilian, and Northern dialect. In yeah, it looks like it might be, if, now it's been a while since I've looked at it, but it's either a Venetian or some sort of a Tuscan, right? It's got, it's, but it's Italian, it's Latin. We have Latin, we have an Italian vernacular, and then we have Castilian in there too. Mm -hmm. Wow, yes. No, oh, yeah, it's quite a... Uh, how, does it, how did it happen? <laughs> That's the question. Well, I think what, I, well, I think what it's, it's meant to do is really just teach you basic principles of alchemy and astronomy. I mean, I really think it's meant to be a primer, but the fact that it switches among these different languages, I find fascinating. And that is, again, that's, I mean, that is just a, a 
bare thought that I have regarding it. So I have no, I've done no work on the project, right? So who knows? Maybe if we revisit this 10 years from now, it could be totally out the window. But, uh, but I do not. <laughs> right, exactly. No, but I do. Or at least tell me which window. That I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think. I mean, I think this is one of the things when when dealing with the kind of the the complexity of these occult sciences and really the power behind them is that you do see them being marshaled again on a practical level for medicinal purposes. Right. How do you make sure that someone is going to be healthy and be happy and survive? Versus this question about right imperial destiny or what is the role of empire and, and do we think of it as these disciplines as kind of leading towards any sort of notions of, I hate to use the term providentialism because it doesn't really fit, but this question, right, about what does it mean to rule, <laughs> right? Who gets to rule and how do they get to rule and when do they get to rule? Yes. Which again deals with these different levels of the occult at, at you know, why it appeals on all levels of society. Mm-hmm. And it, it it is one of the important things. It it does appeal to kings and to settlers yeah. and to everything in between. Mm-hmm. And um, even uh, people like uh, Cardano, they yep. write things even for women because most of astrology was written by men and to men. Even the part of marriage and everything, all these sections about marriage was written clearly to men. Mm-hmm. He writes. Uh, a few chapters about women and about um, some ethical considerations about women. That's really interesting because um, uh, it shows how the um, every person uh, in society uh, would be interested. They would would have questions to ask to astrology, mm-hmm. and would have probably questions to ask to alchemy also. Some yeah. things that they want from alchemy. So it is. It is something that um, when we study the, the the techniques, because we are we are very much into the study of how they develop throughout time, um, we can see that um, generally speaking, and mm-hmm. now I'll be general, um, there are very complex techniques for a more expensive, let's call it like that, mm-hmm. expensive astrology that would take a lot of time to calculate with very specific techniques. And then there are simpler techniques, probably for the market square, where people yep. would ask something mm-hmm. and they would do it in the moment. Yes. So there, there are these kind of <laughs> reports to kings that are very beautiful and everything. And then there's this, you know, this uh, uh, horoscope yes. that you can calculate in the moment with simple techniques. Yeah. And of course, less, less expensive <laughs> also. Mm-hmm. It's a bit for everybody, mm-hmm. I- indeed, indeed. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting, uh, for example, one thing when going back to, 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 to your book on the Kingdom of Aragon is that you found a lot of dynamics within the astrological practice and a lot of debate with the astrological practice at the court and how it's accepted, not accepted, criticized and all that dynamics. But for example, uh, at the same point here in Portugal, which is still within the same geographical context, very close, we don't find that occurring as much, or at least we don't have as many testimonies as those you find. So we, we found a little bit more um, bland. It is, it's here, for example, Elena's first project dissertation was uh, on the, the, the astrological sources that appear on, on Chronicles, and you can see 
they're constructing the image of the kings and the princes through astrology and it pops up everywhere as it would be expected uh, uh, but still we don't have um, not as much no. we don't have we have very little names of astrologers or a good knowledge of their lives their practices what they're doing documents it's not as rich as you would see in in Spain in general uh, uh, and Aragon in particular but there's not that much diversity which is strange even in architecture uh, I've come from art history so for example it's curious to see that all that architecture that you you're always expecting to see a zodiac or some kind of astronomical or astrological reference in a cathedral or in a construction the occasional Scorpio <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing absolutely nothing there's a whole void which is yeah. strange because we're not that distant and we have all these exchanges with marriages and and there's this cultural back and forth and still nothing so it's very different uh, in terms of, of of how it handles so it's it's curious also to see this kind of differences uh popping it even in geographical areas which are well, days of travel, uh, so not that. Well, uh, Aragon is a bit far, but yeah, yeah but it's still within the same. Yeah. yeah. But you go to a place like Leon, right, today, mm -hmm. where Isidore is buried, and you go to that building. And I know this because, as part of the Smithsonian Journeys gigs that I do, we stop off in Leon usually when we do the northern, northern Portugal and Spain. Yeah. And when we go there, the local guide, who's fantastic, she says, take a look at the, the facade. And she goes, what do you notice? And it's the Zodiac up there, right? They actually have the Zodiac on it. And the way she frames it, I find really interesting as well, because she says, you know, even though this is a Christian society, right? And this is, you know, for, for travelers, right? So kind of people who don't know a whole lot about the history, but they're they interested in it. And she says, you know, look, look, we, we have this, we have this Christian building and the survival of these pagan practices. And I always get a little, you know, no, not really. We've got Christians who are engaging with it. But it is one of these things, right, that, that to have that kind of physically present at the Zodiac, right, in a largely, not completely, but a largely illiterate society, right, does reinforce this notion about, God's creation, right? And all of this being as part of God's creation. And, you know, and yes, there is that occult flavor to it, certainly. And it would have been seen, I think, both then and now as having a tinge of the occult, but really is more of this question about what is the natural world, yes. right? And how does it reflect kind of God's creation? Exactly. One of, uh, one of the manuscripts that we were putting <laughs> today in digital form, of course, is the, the image of God painting the zodiac yeah. <laughs> so it's, wow wow it's, we can send it to it's you want to see it yeah quite nice it's, it's quite, quite nice it's quite interesting because yeah. it's god it's creation and then god is painting the zodiac in the celestial <laughs> sphere so yes <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, it was created by god yeah. actually yeah it so, is it is great yeah it is it is uh I think this way people sometimes don't understand this. This associate again. Let's go back what we're talking about. This existence of astrology is embedded. It's not something outside. It's something which is within the narrative, as Elena was saying earlier. The narrative of the world. It's it's part. Uh, even if you don't consider it to be that it, in Christian terms, it cannot be used in certain ways. It cannot predict certain things. That's not permissible. That's not doable. But still. 
it's there as part of nature. It still governs the season. It is, still has significance over time, uh, over the, the, the structure of time and the cycles of life. So it's there. It's not alien yeah. to, to and, and as the, it is today. The tendency was not to separate. It was, you know, yeah. medieval, medieval people. <laughs> the, ten, the tendency was to integrate, yeah. to, to, to be... To be integrating everything. For instance, the other thing we have is uh, the image of creation, and again, God creating the elements, the four elements. Yeah, yes. it's also very so it's a very eclectic way. Very eclectic. Of <laughs> Aristotle's and the Bible meet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the most fascinating things about these occult sciences, right? For lack of a better term, right? That, that they are. It's as you said, the pre-moderns didn't make these hard and fast distinctions. Yes, we talk about. At, at, at a curricular level, astronomy and astrology is kind of theory and practice, right? Or, you know, vice versa, right? But that, this notion is that most people don't think of it that way. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we moderns do does a grave disservice, I think, to the study of these disciplines, at least the, the, the accurate study of these disciplines. I mean, I, f I have a friend who is a, a physician and I was mentioning something about astrology on Facebook the other day, and he responded with a, an animated GIF of Sheldon, the character from um, oh, The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> and he's got his T-shirt up over his nose, and he's spraying, like, air freshener. And he, and he says, oh, astrology. Now, he's a physician, right? And it's one of these things I said, Harvey, you gotta, you know, you got to understand that, that for medieval people, this was not the way they operate, right? That your own assessment of it being as a very modern discipline and scientific and rational and truth is very modern and not how people think in this period. You can't think of it that way. But again, he's not a historian, right? He's a doctor, he's a physician. And he has a vested interest, I think, in a lot of ways in that narrative. But, uh, but uh, probably what your friend think when we say astrology to you, you have an idea. And uh, when you say astrology to your friend, he has probably the idea of sun sign astrology or newspaper astrology, which is completely different and it, not the same at all. So he's, in a way, he's right, you know. <laughs> I understand. I understand the... the, the they are fresh in their <laughs> Because it's different. Uh, every time I... Um, I give a seminar or a lecture and Louise does the same. We have to have to begin with this disclaimer, like, look, we are going to talk about astrology, quiet. This is not the same. Yes. <laughs> and then we go. Uh, we have been extremely lucky because people understand and we have been invited for several seminars and um, uh, lectures, lectures yeah. and even in religious context. Mm -hmm. And um, people have been really open but That's we great. have to begin with this. We have to yeah. begin with this. What are we like, talking what about? What we're talking There's about is not the yeah, idea yeah. that we have today. Mm -hmm. And then we can, you know, they, they breathe and they go. <laughs> and then <laughs> we can go. But yeah. so I understand. I, I actually understand the reaction of your friend. Because what, what he thinks, when, what his mind thinks when this word is said to him is not the same as we all think. It's a different thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I understand. <laughs> I think one of the things, right, this gets to these larger question about what it means to be a pre-modern historian in the modern world, right? And this question about relevance, which I think can be a double-edged sword, right? This question about, okay, well, how is studying the Middle Ages relevant? Well, it's very relevant. I mean, it's relevant in a lot of ways. 
But then you, you know, again, if people sometimes like will look at, at the occult sciences and they'll say, oh, well, that's backward, right? Or superstitious, or they'll use these terms. right? It's like it becomes incumbent upon us to say, no, 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 wait. Okay, this is what, this is the intellectual baggage you're bringing, right? That we bring as moderns, right? Versus what is the intellectual baggage that the pre-moderns have? regarding this and it is it is a form of baggage right because it's not it's not an easily it's not an easily um unpacked discipline in a lot of ways especially when you get to these more popular understandings of it and how people receive it and understand it i mean again you if you're if you're getting a, a quick horoscope done in the marketplace, right? That's more, right? It, are you how much how much do you invest in that, right? In terms of knowledge, well, you might invest a lot into it, depending on who the client is, depending on what they're asking. They may invest a lot into it, right? Versus some sumptuously illustrated guide right, to astrology <laughs> that we might assume, oh, this is really people are really interested and invested in it. It might just be a pretty book, right, for the library that they have, right? So it becomes this question about how do you get to the how do you get to this knowledge? And I, and I think one of the things that's most exciting, but also most frustrating about this is that a lot of times we can't give those definitive answers, right? In terms of yeah. so-and-so read this at this point and applied these principles at this point, right? That is almost impossible to determine, I think, in a lot of ways, but it shouldn't prevent us from asking these important questions about how is this still received in, the, in this society? Uh, most of the time when people ask this, well, not you, obviously, but most people say, how, how is this relevant? Meaning, how can we get, how can we make money from this? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, I, so at the end of my last book, I mentioned Ronald Reagan, right? And his interest in astrology and, and Nancy Reagan, especially kind of dictating Reagan's schedule in engagement with um, Quigley, right? This Nob Hill astrologer. And that was, that was a big scandal, of course, right? Because you have these darlings of the religious right, right? Suddenly engaging with occult <laughs> science. The right? of astrology. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things that, that dealing with right now, this question about fraud and what makes a charlatan a charlatan, right? Now we see what can happen if you have someone in power, right? Who, has, who is a compulsive liar and is someone who has enormous power at their disposal and is using whatever tricks they can to try and influence others um, and influence their way of thinking. I think this is one of the questions that we get to. I mean, one of the, the questions that gets raised in, in dealing with this current project is, you know, did, the, did these people see themselves as frauds? Was there a sort of a malice and intent, right, to deceive? Mm -hmm. And you don't get a lot of that, like as far as I can see. And I know Tara Numadal has done work in the context of early modern in the early modern Holy Roman Empire, and that these alchemists, um, they're not. It's it's really a breaking of a contract rather than any sort of straightforward deceit. Mm -hmm. Although deceit sometimes creeps in, you don't really get that, right? And so I think this is the larger question: is what makes a fraud a fraud at this time? Mm -hmm. And who gets to deceive, and when do they get to deceive? Is a whole other matter that that intersects with this question of what is this claim to this privileged, specialized knowledge that is represented by astrological knowledge and or alchemical knowledge mm -hmm. and or that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. exactly. And if people really want to be clarified or not, that, mm -hmm. is, another, that is another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's one of the things that I find really interesting as well is that you know, you, you do see in the case of Venice, as far as what I've seen so far, that these kind of these cases that go before the Avigoria de Comun, these lawyers, 
are really questions that deal with someone's been counterfeited, right? It's it's like, oh, I wanted a gem. I wanted a fake. I wanted a real gem. Do you create a real gem and you didn't you create a fake gem? If someone wants a fake gem, right, that's fine. They're not going to, to bring them up on charges. So it's really this question about, hey, I paid for a service and you didn't give me what I and I think that's one of the things I find most fascinating, especially in the larger context of Venetian secular responses to counterfeiting broadly, is this notion that we are, you know, we're a mercantile society and that if our product is base or it's considered base, it has this almost cascading effect. I mean, they don't say it that way, but it could have a cascading effect questioning the very economic foundation of the city itself, right? The goods and the, the coin that come out of it. Yeah, yeah. I think we have an equivalent in also the religious restrictions to astrology, in which they discuss, well, if you see it as a probability, which can be explained by natural causes, then you can say it, you can say it as a probability, as of something that has a high probability of happening, but still you cannot promise something specific will happen. That you cannot do. Yeah, so that's a restriction. So it's the same thing. Yeah. The other guy, well, I wanted this specific gem and they give me a false one. And well, well uh, this prediction you said that would happen just like this, it didn't. It so <laughs> it's the, the idea, I think it's the same. It's the, 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 the outcome must be clarified. You must be clear with what, you're, what are the limits of what you're doing so that the, the customer or the receiver knows exactly what can expect and what cannot be done by that by that art by that uh, knowledge and in a hyper competitive world right in a hyper public space where everyone is sort of competing for clients you know then that becomes i think of higher state stakes right i mean a lot of what i'm seeing although you know some of the stuff i've seen are, are significant counterfeiting issues but but by and large these are not as they're enough to get the the authorities attention but these are not like matters of high treason or diplomacy or anything like that, right? This is all at a very local, and again, shows these sort of interactions at the local level, which I find fascinating, right? The sort of receptivity of what is fraud or what is deceit or what is counterfeiting um, at these local kind of engagements, I find truly fascinating. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully it'll be finished soon. That's the goal. Hope so, well, and we'll so. be attentive. Yes. Uh, one Thank of the you. things, Thanks. just before we go, uh, that uh, we noticed and we discussed this a lot, is that uh, um, throughout time, even Ptolemy and throughout time, really, they uh, all, when they write books, they, they have this kind of disclaimer, like, uh, we are the good ones. We are the ones that have the knowledge. And yes. we have nothing to do oh. with those other guys. <laughs> Our knowledge is properly set down yeah. in scientific foundations, whatever that means for the specific And those period. other guys are not, they are, they are charlatans, yes. They, they talk about astrology, but they, they are not really properly um, informed about astrology. And this is this tension between people who use uh, astrology uh, mathematically and scientifically, and then people who use other divinatory arts, which are also very interesting, but they are not astrology, and they tend to call themselves astrologers, even today. And this is something that exists throughout time. It's so interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And <laughs> so probably you, you would have the alchemists, the great alchemists, 
with, with, with their all their uh, diplomas and knowledge and, and, and when suddenly would go to these people in the bar and say, oh my <laughs> God. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, the Chrysippians, right, of the early modern era, they're the armchair alchemists who think very theoretically mm -hmm. and who say, look, these are really elaborate theoretical philosophical principles that have been transmitted from on high from this Hermes Trismegistus, right, who they conceptualize as a living, as a former living sage of antiquity, right, and that they are the inheritors of a body of knowledge that is meant to be guarded, right, by these adepts. And then you have these books of secrets that sort of transmit this knowledge in a very haphazard way. And so these Chrysippians of the, of the early modern era in many ways distinguish themselves by saying, look at all of these base alchemists. Look at all of these frauds. Look at all of these charlatans. We're not like that, right? So they're undercutting in many ways, not the discipline, although they're, they're critiquing the discipline. They're saying the discipline is full of frauds, but, but we're not these frauds, right? We're not the, frauds. Yeah. <laughs> we are not those guys. <laughs> This gets to this larger question, right, to turn back to the Iberian concept, right, where Michael McVaugh had studied licensure, right, in the Crown of Aragon before the arrival of the Black Death, right? There is this tension and competition among all of these medical practitioners, and it starts to be that in order to practice medicine, you have to go to a university, right? You have to have that medical training. You can't just be an apothecary or a barber or a wise woman or have a body of empirical knowledge, right, that may be quite sound and might be actually quite useful, but unless you go to the university and get the license. And I think that's the, the tension that we're seeing in a lot of ways is this codification in the later Middle Ages of who gets to practice these bodies of knowledge and who gets to write upon them and who gets to actually expound upon them and then have that felt broadly within society. Um, you know, you look at like someone like Jean Gerson, right, who is not a fan of magic but is a fan of visionary insight when it's contextualized around Joan of Arc, right? I mean, this question of who gets to make these claims and who gets to, to really engage with very mm -hmm. obtuse, but also theologically problematic principles. Mm -hmm. I think one of these things that in the later Middle Ages is constantly being wrangled over. I mean, I find, I find the work of Michael D. Bailey to be particularly important when we think mm -hmm. about Right, and, and especially in bridging this world of kind of magic and science, right, where we see the later Middle Ages in the 14th and especially the 15th century, the increasing diabolization of magic, right, that's going to lay the foundation for really what we see in the early modern era. In a lot of ways, that's that's applied to the to the occult world as well. Not mm -hmm. not in the same degree, right? Alchemy is not maleficium. Astrologia is not maleficium, but these kind of larger criticism. <laughs> Yeah, you have, you, but you have restrictions. The, the true restrictions to astrology come out in late 16th century. So it's the parallel, I think, uh, uh, of the, the demonization of magic, as you were saying. So you, we do have that kind of um, trying to validate. Uh, yeah. How can we validate the knowledge? No, we we yeah. actually have imagery that uh, shows the astrologer with the book and with the stars, but also with a small demon under the yeah. table. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because <laughs> those are the nasty ones. The nasty ones. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, and that's the thing. I, I think about like the Palazzo della Ragione too in, in Padova, right? That that is beautiful and it's an amazing structure full of all of this astrological imagery and these astrological principles and you look at them. I mean, you could spend hours and hours and hours just unpacking it. And there's one of my favorite ones is the necromancer. And the necromancer is there where 
if I'm not mistaken, is depicted almost conducting like geomancy, right? There's scribblings on the ground and then they've got the stars above them, right? So kind of connecting again, heaven and earth. But there is a little demon there as well, right? Kind of yeah. by their side. So, <laughs> you can know this person's bad. They got their little demon friend, right? Yeah, they yeah. yeah, small demon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. we could stay here forever. <laughs> yes. I, really been an honor and a pleasure and i feel like like I, I i want to talk more right and hear more about what you all are doing and kind of share more of this and kind of talk this out but thank you for having me i really really oh, thank you it's a pleasure uh, we can always have another podcast exactly another soon. conversation it will be a pleasure mm -hmm. and i think we we want we won't be out of uh, <laughs> topics to discuss ever <laughs> but well, um, if your viewers or listeners ever have any questions and they want to get in touch with me, um, can I share my email as of well? Course, of course, of course. We can put your contact of course. in the And you can share the podcast with uh, your students or... Okay, yeah, I love that. Yeah, no, I, I would love to, to if, if I can help in any way or share any information, I'd, I'd be delighted to. Yeah, um, that would be lovely. And uh, of course, we will share your information in the description. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And we will send you the, the image that we were talking about. Yes. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. And like I said, when I hopefully next year I'll be able to travel again, all of us. And uh, I'd love to, to meet you all in person in Lisboa. Could even do the podcast there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. yeah. We, we, sure. will, we will go to one of these beautiful medieval spots with a castle or something. Yeah, and you we'll, can do it we'll there. It there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's... Well, and if you ever want to come to New Mexico, to the land of enchantment, you're more than welcome. And I'll show you a wonderful time. I'll feed you full of green chili, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.